Let us turn for our reading this evening to Romans chapter 8, reading verse 12, and we'll close off the reading at verse 25. But as you're turning to God's Word, I do want to turn your attention to the diagram on the, uh, on the handout, and I've been asked to say a little bit more about that diagram, and it might be beneficial to do so for those who are not here last uh, Lord's Day evening. We uh, started this two-part series on adoption um, under the title, The Grace of Adoption, and um, one of the things we noticed is that only Paul uses the term adoption in the Bible, uh, and uh, there's only one term for adoption, it means the placing of a son in the household, as we saw last Lord's Day evening. But he uses that term on five occasions, and we'll return to that in our message tonight. But when you read Galatians, Ephesians, Romans, these uh, sporadic mentions of adoption seem rather hiddledy-piddledy. But actually, when you look at them, uh, you can place these five references in historical order And when you do that, you realize why one Southern Presbyterian pastor of the 19th century, Benjamin Morgan Palmer, said there's no word in our whole system that uh, explains the grace of God as well as adoption. But there is a challenge when we come to this theme, and part of it is that we all come with our notion, our human notions of what adoption is. And if you look at the popular books on adoption, you typically see a father with a very young child. Well, that's not the picture that Paul has in mind. So let me just run through these texts just briefly. We're in number one, Ephesians 1.5, last uh, Sunday evening. The word under that is protology. Don't be concerned about the words. This is coming from a, a different genre. But it basically means the first things. And we saw how the Father from eternity past has chosen us in Christ for adoption. We'll mention Romans 9 verse 4 tonight, briefly in passing. But if you're wondering what those diagrams are, it's Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. And we'll be noticing how the Old Testament church was, in Paul's view of things, adopted as the Son of God, but a son under age. And hence, the rest of the Old Testament is about how Israel came of age as the Son of God, God's covenant people. And then I mentioned last Lord's Day evening, about five years ago, preaching a series on a, or sermon on Galatians 4, 4 to 7. You will see there the cross, the cost of our redemption, the shed blood, the empty tomb. We're united to a living Savior, our elder brother, and an empty hand. We talk about being justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's as true to say we are adopted by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. But the texts we're coming to this evening, number four and five, the uh, um, life of the Spirit of the Son within the sons of God, and hence... uh, There you see the diagram, the Holy Spirit coming within us as a fire, the gospel going out to the nations, out to the Gentiles. And then number five we'll be dealing with as well, verses 22 and 23 of Romans 8, that we are not only adopted in our souls, but the wonderful thing, often neglected, is we're going to be adopted in our bodies as well. And we're going to be enjoying the grace of adoption on this new earth unto the ages of eternity to come. So let us turn then and read Romans chapter 8 verses 12 through 25. 
So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. No hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The Lord bless this reading of his holy word. Let us once again pray. Father, we do thank you that we can call you Father, that you, through Christ's righteousness, has welcomed us as your children. Lord, we pray for Dr. Tim as he brings this word. Thank you for this beloved passage of Romans chapter 8. And Father, we just uh, give all praise and glory and honor to your name. Amen. 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 So having considered last Lord's Day evening, adoption, the grace of adoption, we come this evening then to the glory of adoption, and we're looking specifically at verses 14 through 25 of this chapter. You will recall that uh, Pastor Bob has been going through the uh, doctrines that are found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. He's uh, not been going through the confession itself, but just picking out those themes that are found in the confession, and it's been most helpful. But as we have mentioned, when we come to the doctrine of adoption, we are coming to something that is of historic significance as it pertains to the Westminster Confession, because the Westminster Confession was the first confession we know of, published in 1647, that includes a chapter on the doctrine of adoption. But unfortunately, in the uh, centuries after that, we lost sight of the doctrine as we focused upon what we are saved from and neglected what we are saved to. And I do believe that that had an impact on the rise of Victorian liberalism and its teaching of the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man, which occupied the 19th century. For the last 30 or 40 years, uh, God has been raising up various individuals to bring our minds back to the doctrine of adoption and to complement what we know of the free grace of justification with the free grace of adoption. And one of the things that has happened as uh, this doctrine is being recovered is that we have unearthed some of the people who predated the Westminster Confession of Faith, 
who understood the importance of adoption. And it helps that one of the great church fathers, Augustine, was one of the ones to do that. And this is what he says. The word adoption is of great importance in the system of our faith, as is seen from the apostolic writings. Adoption is a significant symbol. And so on the one hand, as we recap from last week and as we progress to what we're going to consider tonight, I want to notice the fourfold significance of this term adoption. The first significance is the power of the term itself. Paul could have just told his readers, now listen, you are accepted by God. That's a wonderful thing. And you have a particular standing with God that you didn't have before. But unless he used metaphors and figures of speech, then his sermon would be very short because he would have to come back and say, now, if you didn't get it the first time, you're accepted by God and you have a standing with God that you didn't have before. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who raised up men, breathed upon them to use figures of speech from their own context, we can learn much more about our acceptance with God on the one hand and our standing with God on the other. So the power of adoption is found in this, that first of all, it decorates what it means to be accepted with God and to have a standing with God. And more than that, by this endearing term and endearing concept of moving from one family to another family, we are stirred to praise God and we are stirred to serve God as the sons of God. And what is more, in the process of being inspired by the Holy Spirit, when Paul creates this metaphor of adoption, he is also receiving light from the Holy Spirit to be able to say more than can be said by merely saying, listen, if you didn't get it the first and second time, you're accepted by God and you have a standing with God. And so by clothing this privilege that is ours in this language of adoption, we are led more deeply into the gospel, we are led more deeply into worship, we are led more deeply into the service of God. The word adoption then, to put it in modern parlance, has a wow factor. And if you're wondering how I ever came to be involved in uh, the study of the doctrine of adoption, that's exactly how it happened. When I was in the Free Church of Scotland College in the early 1990s, a New Testament professor says, I have an assignment for you. We're going through a book by a Dutchman called Herman Ridderboss, Paul, an outline of his theology. And he said, now, students, all you need to do is give an outline of an outline of Paul's theology. So he split up the chapters of the book. And one day, I remember looking at the wall where the list of assignments and the whole array of assignments. And the student's name was next to each chapter. And I was going down the assignments wondering which one I had. Now, one of the chapters is called Tertius Usus Legus. It's not exactly endearing. You have to look up what it means. It means the third use of the law. Fascinating subject. But then I came to my name and it said adoption. I thought, wow, that's colorful. That's interesting. 
and it's captured my interest ever since. There's a power in the Word, not only for us, but for those who first read these letters. But people say, well, adoption's not very important. Paul only uses it five times. But that's the way a metaphor works. You use it sufficiently so that it takes root in the thinking of the people of God. But you don't overuse it so that familiarity breeds contempt. The power of the word. The second significance, the purpose of adoption. Paul's writing at a critical turning point in history. Christ, we saw last Lord's Day evening, has broken down the middle wall of partition. He has, through the blood of the cross, brought together Jews and Gentiles, reconciled unto God and to one another, and now they are included in the one household. And so in this new covenant era, you've got to admire the first century church. We think we're dealing with division today. Paul is seeking to use this term adoption to bring together those who are from very contrasting backgrounds. Jews who have come to faith in Christ, Gentiles who come to faith in Christ. How are we going to have them in the same church, the one household of God? Well, says Paul, in effect, I'm going to teach them how that both of them, believing Jews and believing Gentiles, share the grace of adoption. We heard this morning about our shared salvation, our common salvation. Well, this is what Paul is doing with this word. And so he draws on Old Testament history. And if you go to the next chapter, chapter 9 and verse 4, he lists the privileges of the children of Israel, the first of which is they were adopted. And his mind goes back to Mount Sinai. God's ancient people, they were redeemed from slavery. There it is again, redeemed from slavery in Egypt, adopted at Mount Sinai. And from that point on, Israel became God's young son. And the whole purpose of the ceremonial law was to educate up the young son for the time when Israel would come of age or the people of God would come of age. And so what's happening now in this new covenant era? Well, Gentiles are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so on the one hand, Paul takes hold of this Greek term and he fills it with Old Testament history. But to make sure that the Gentile believers freshly come into the church, don't feel isolated, don't feel marginalized, he also weaves in lessons from Roman adoption, adoptio, as they would be familiar with that. So it's not surprising then that when we come to the epistle of Romans, of the five references to adoption, three are found in this epistle because he's writing to Christians at the heart of Rome. And what's his point? He says, if you grasp the word adoption, you grasp that in the membership of the church of Jesus Christ, there is a level playing field. All of us, to a believer, were by nature enslaved in sin, purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and placed in the family of God by God the Father. The third significance, the practicality of adoption. Paul seeks then not only to consolidate the household of God, to settle down Jews and Gentile believers in the one household, 
but he wants to motivate the sons of God. And he wants to motivate them for two reasons. First of all, to be holy. They must be holy sons. Recall last uh, Lord's Day evening, Ephesians 1.5. We weren't predestined to adoption because we were holy and because we were blameless, but so that we might be holy, so that we might be blameless in the sight of God. And so Paul comes back to this theme here of holiness, and he says, listen, if you're claiming that the grace of God is free, and by that grace you have been placed in the family of God, then don't treat that grace as a cheap grace. It is incumbent upon me as it is upon you to be a holy son, and we may say a holy daughter of God. But there's more going on in the background. Paul is writing to this church because he wants to enlist their support for the spread of the gospel in the west of the empire in Spain. And he says, if you're going to be a support to me, then you need to understand the gospel. And it is this gospel which helps bring people from diverse cultural backgrounds as one in the Lord Jesus Christ into a singular household, the household of God. God's sons then are most effective, most outgoing, when they are holy sons and when they are happy sons, sensing their blessedness. The fourth significance, the prolonging of adoption. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, Paul now extends the metaphor beyond anything known in society, be it Greek, be it Roman, be it Semitic. There is no human equivalent for what he's about to deal with in Romans 8. So on the one hand, he says, we are already adopted. You can go to Ephesians 1, you can go to Galatians 4. We are already adopted. If you have faith in Jesus Christ and have received Christ, you have received the adoption. Well, then how then can he speak in verses 22 and 23 about the adoption which is to come, the redemption of our bodies. There's no connection to human adoption in this. We are adopted, and yet we are yet to be adopted. We saw last Sunday evening, we have already obtained the inheritance, and yet we're yet to enter into the inheritance. And so, what began before the creation of the earth, Paul now takes us beyond its renewal to see how these two things, what we call the now but the not yet, come together in not only the grace of adoption but the glory of adoption. Two points tonight. First of all, the glory of adoption is spiritual, verses 14 through 17. We noticed again last Lord's Day evening that there's something special in divine adoption which doesn't happen in human adoption. One of the things that is special is that when we are placed in the household of God, not only do we have a new location, but the spirit of the adopter comes to take up residence in our hearts. That happens in no human adoption. And so Paul lists here four evidences that we have the spirit of adoption, that we are already adopted. 
First of all, verse 14, we are led by the Spirit. Now recall from Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, we mentioned how that we were previously in a household. We called it the household of the living dead. Uh, We did not have a heavenly father. Our father, in inverted commas, was the prince of the power of the air. And what did he do? Well, he drove us to follow and pursue the passions of the flesh. Paul says in Ephesians 2, we were sons of disobedience, children of wrath. And it is from that context of enslavement, a killing enslavement, that we are adopted into the household of God. And so bear that in mind as we come into this passage here. Notice verse 3, God intervened. Our heavenly Father sent His Son to liberate us. God's natural Son, quote-unquote, condemned sin in the flesh. How did He do that? Well, He shed His blood to cover our sin. We call that expiation. And He satisfied God's justice. We call that propitiation. And He freed our souls from the guilt of sin. He freed our souls from the power of sin, and one day we shall see that we are free from the eventual presence of sin. And on account of this cost, verse 4, we are no longer to walk according to the flesh. In other words, according to the sinful nature. And so if, verse 5, we do so, says Paul, we cannot please God. That's the context in which he now says that one of the evidences that we are the sons of God is that we are led by the Spirit of God. Sin leads to death, but the Holy Spirit leads us into life and into vibrancy. Now, while God's sons keep the law, the law is not our focus. It's counterintuitive. Our focus as the sons of God is on pleasing the Father, on emulating the Son, and on being sensitive to the Spirit. And yet, if we please the Father, if we emulate the Son, if we are sensitive to the leading of the Spirit, what's the end result? We keep the law of God. First evidence, we are led by the Spirit. Second evidence, verse 15, we are emboldened by the Spirit. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's always a danger, see, of us falling back into that fearful bondage that belonged to us as slaves. And Paul reminds these Christians, you have not anymore got the spirit of bondage, the spirit of enslavement. You've got an emboldening spirit of the Son indwelling you. In other words, whereas in human adoption, there's a legal paperwork that goes between the judge and the family, etc., etc., for us in divine adoption... We not only have the legality of the adoption, but we have the Spirit dwelling within us, the Spirit of the Son, whereby we can cry, Abba, Father. Well, what does the Spirit enable? Well, the Spirit 
is the one who unites us with the Son. The Father elects us, the Son purchases us, but the Spirit binds us to Christ. How does He do that? Well, He inspires faith within us, whereby we cling hold of Christ. And as we cling hold of Christ, what do we find? We find He is clinging hold of me. He is clinging hold of you. John Calvin called the Holy Spirit the bond of our union. The Spirit not only enables our union with the Son, the Spirit also enables our expression of our liberty from our former slavery. If you compare Galatians 4 verse 6 with what we find here in Romans 8 15, what do you find? You find that the moment a believer comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, previously having had no personal relationship with God, and if they spoke about God at all, they called him God. God. But the moment a person believes upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and is united to the natural son, what happens? We start to call God Father. But in Galatians 4, 6, Paul says that it is by the Spirit we cry out. In other words, the Holy Spirit puts the name Father on our tongue so that for the first time we can call God our Father. But there's a subtle difference here in Romans 8. What is the difference? The difference is that we now cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit has taught us how to pray, and then we get on with praying. And He also enables our understanding of our new relationship. What do we pray? Abba, Father, we cry it out. Recall that Paul is probably drawing from the prayer of the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And so now, he says, once we are placed as sons in the Son, we have the wonderful privilege of being able to pray to our Father in heaven the same way in which God the Son prays to His Father in heaven. Now, as we said last week, we are not divine. We're not saying that. Nor are we saying that we have the memory of God's fatherhood that the Son has, for they were together in eternity past. But we, late in the day perhaps, come into the same relationship of sonship. And because we are united with the Son, we can now cry out, Abba, Father. And notice, I don't know if you've ever wondered about this, why the two words, Abba, Father. One's Aramaic and one is Greek. Abba, Pater, literally. Now, why does Paul put it that way? Well, you see what is happening in the New Covenant era. There's Jewish believers coming who would have spoken Aramaic. There's Gentile believers who are coming who would speak Greek. And so when he says, Abba, Father, he's saying Jews and Gentiles believing upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ can call upon God as Father exactly the same way. Not only as one another, but also as the Lord Jesus Christ. There's some application here. If we are truly convinced that we have the spirit of adoption, the implication of that is this, that it is not belonging to the sons of God to be disinterested in prayer. We cry out in our own hearts, but also in the community of the household of God. 
Prayer is not something that we're indifferent to. It is the breath of the Christian. And what is more about this cry is that it's not a whimper. The Spirit comes, He teaches us how to pray to God as Father, and by the Spirit's enabling, we cry, Abba, Father. And so let me, let me make this pitch to you, this appeal to you, because uh, I think it's something that we can really take on board here in West Michigan. This whole notion of prayer, it's integrally linked to our possession of the spirit of adoption. If we know that we are filled with the spirit of the Son, we won't be disinterested in prayer. And if we know that we are filled with the spirit of adoption, we will not be cowardly in prayer. We cry out by the Spirit's enabling. There's a sense of confidence. There's a sense of assurance. There's a sense of conviction. We cannot afford then to go around saying, I'm not interested in prayer. We cannot afford to go around saying that I'm afraid of praying in public. It is a denial of the spirit of adoption. We cry out, not because we love to hear the sound of our own voice, but because we have the Spirit of the Son of God indwelling us so that we call upon the name of God. We, with abandon, come to God. Thirdly, we are assured by the Spirit, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, of course, a witness was very important to the Jews. Two or three witnesses for everything. But also in Roman adoption, there could be as many as seven witnesses to show that the adoption was legal. And so when Paul is saying that the Spirit witnesses with our spirits that we are the children of God, we're not only taught that the adoption is legal, we are taught that we really are the children of God. The Spirit witnesses not to our spirits as some extra biblical revelation, but alongside our spirits. And this is the mystery of God's providence. This is why it's such a great salvation that the primary witness is the Holy Spirit coming alongside my spirit as a secondary witness. And these two witnesses, again, the multiplicity of witnesses, come together and say, you are a child of God. But you ask the term, well, why children? Well, come back to the point we said last week. The father never dies. My mother is 88 years of age this year. I shall forever be a child so long as she is alive. And you will forever be a child of God so long as your father is alive in heaven. And of course... Paul is reminding us that although he uses the term sons in the Son to express the union between us and the Son of God in our relationship to the Father, female sisters in Christ are not excluded. Fourthly, verse 17, we are sustained by the Spirit. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. These Roman believers are heirs of God and heirs with Christ, but they are suffering. Notice they are suffering with Christ. You see, we enjoy union with the Son when it comes to the highs. But Paul says, 
We also ought to cherish union with the Son when it comes to the lows. Christ suffered for us to buy us from slavery. We suffer with Christ out of loyalty to our older brother. And that suffering is a prelude to glory. You see, these men and women, you've heard me say it before and you know it from your own reading. They were stretched to their limits under persecution. Some of them being ignited, burned alive as torches. They knew what it was to suffer with Christ. And it's been my privilege over these past years to meet others who have suffered with Christ. There's a man in our city, a pastor, Anwar, whose son was martyred in Pakistan, went up on his roof, headed up a Christian retreat center in Pakistan. Somebody jumps one wrong roof to the other, kills him, jumps back across the roof. His son comes down the stairs and dies. This week, I was sent pictures of a brother in Christ who was killed for Christ in northern Pakistan. A pastor in a church going out on the streets, killed. You see, we have been so very comfortable, and we cannot be held accountable for that, but the days are coming when we'll need to know that we really are adopted. And that we haven't been adopted simply to be glorified with Christ. First comes the suffering with Christ. And we need to know what we're going to do when that day comes. And so the glory of adoption is spiritual. But secondly, this evening, it's corporeal. Or to put it in layman's terms, it's seen bodily, verses 18 to 25. Our inclination is to consider glory to be heaven upon death. And that, of course, is true, but heaven upon death is merely heaven in its intermediate state, of which the New Testament says remarkably little. And that's why we tend to fantasize about what it is like to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. But the Apostle Paul, as it were, skips over that because that's not the ultimate of New Testament hope. The ultimate of New Testament hope is not that I die and go to heaven but that Christ returns and heaven comes here on a renewed earth. And that's what he's dealing with here in verses 18 through 25. He's saying, in effect, that when God the Father adopts us, he doesn't parcel out and say, well, I adopt your soul, but sorry, your body's going by the wayside. That's a a grand half-truth to say that we die to go be with Christ, but it is a half-truth. The full truth is that Christ is returning to renewed earth, whether we shall be uh, adopted not only in soul as we are now, but adopted also in body, psychosomatically whole, to worship God in spirit and in body as the adopted sons of God. And so notice with me, first of all, Verses 18 to 19, the anticipation of glory. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits eagerly with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Paul is not playing down the sufferings. But he is raising their minds to the glory. Glory already exists in the unseen realm. But says Paul, the glory will be revealed, verse 18, literally to or into us. That's a remarkable statement. Although we experience glory in and about our souls the moment we die, absent from the body, present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul refers to the glory revealed at the end of the age to and into full beings, body and soul. You know, when it's my privilege to lead a, lead a funeral, I go to the visitation to meet with the family 15 minutes before the visitation starts, and I always read this passage, not because of tradition, but because it is so meaningful. There they are. They've seen their loved one die. And as much as the funeral director's dress the body up as best they can, and some look almost alive. But they've only got moments left over the next day or so to look at that body. And then comes the funeral, and Pastor Bob will know this experience as well. And you stand with the funeral directors, and the family is about to go ahead. They, they fail, file past the casket. And then comes that very moving moment where the funeral director takes off the ring, the glasses, puts them in a little velvet pouch, winds down the pillow. I think that's a tremendous moment. And that's the last time. They're going to see this body for now. And so when we come to the visitation, what do we read? Well, we read from Job 19. In my flesh... I shall see God and not another. In my flesh, oh, that these words were written in a book. And lo and behold, they are the best book of all. In my flesh, I shall see God. God's glory revealed to us and into us. But more than that, verse 19, God's glory will be revealed by us. Which is why Paul starts talking about the creation. Creation waits for the revelation of God's sons because our bodies are part of creation. Thus, in creation's renewal, our bodies are redeemed from death, resurrected to incorruption and imperishability to reveal God's grace and power. And so what happens when Christ comes again? When the graves are opened... Thinking upon those who are resurrected unto life, whose bodies are now redeemed from death. What happens? There is the full complement of God's household. The adopted sons and daughters of God. And God's glory is revealed to them, into them, and by them. This is tremendously comforting when suffering with Christ. But it's also soul-searching. Let me say to you tonight, if you are yet to open up your empty hands and to receive the adoption, you can have no confidence, says verse 19, that
that you are going to be revealed as a son of God. No confidence. And so although Paul is writing to believers here, we would say, if there are those present who are yet to receive this free gift of the grace of adoption, without receiving this free gift, you will not be in the revelation of the sons of God. You will be revealed as a son of disobedience. You will be revealed as a child of wrath. But you will not be revealed as a son of God. And there'll be no place to hide. Either you're in the company of the household or you're not. It's as simple as that. Not only the anticipation of glory, notice verses 20 and 21, the depiction of glory. Note the parallel experience of the creation and man. When man fell, creation became bound. When creation is renewed, man enters into the fullness of his redemption. Creation will be freed from every taint of the fall, precisely so that the children of God can enjoy their adoption. Notice the freedom is double-sided. Freedom from bondage, verse 21a. Paul is not making this up. Jesus spoke of the new world to come, Matthew 19, 28. A world without weeds, a world without frustration, a world without sickness, without accidents, without injustice, without malice, without corruption, without sorrow, without death. And then he goes on to the flip side of the freedom, the freedom of the glory of God's children. Oh, the number. Oh, the number. Free of sin. Free of shame. Free of sorrow. A free environment, unlike our own, yet without any anarchy. For each of God's children will be using their liberty to be holy, to be worshipful, and to be serving. Go home and read the rest of the vision of the new earth in Isaiah 65. And see how tangible is the hope of the adopted Son of God. Let's not denude our hope. It's very tangible. And so thirdly then, verses 22 to 23, the experience of glory. God has instilled hope in creation as well as in his people. And the hope is a relief, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. But notice what it says, and this is especially relevant in our own day. The pain is not of death pangs, but of childbirth. A new earth is to be born. And so what do we find in our own day? Well, you see, all these people who have been promoting the passions of the flesh, the sons of disobedience, the children of wrath, they're saying the climate is falling apart. The climate is falling apart. We've got to do something about it. We've got to plow all this money into it. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe we ought to care for the environment. But our hope does not hang upon what happens to the environment. Our hope hangs upon the fact that this creation, subjected to futility, yearns. Yes, it yearns, but not with death pangs, but for childbirth, the birth of a new earth, the birth of a new universe. You take this dear child, Greta Thunberg, with all her sullenness, with all her angst, she's a sick girl. That is true. Panicking, fretting, 
fearful. You politicians, you have to do something. You selfish generation of older people, you have to do something. You have to do something. And what's our message? Yes, we have been wrong if we've not cared for the creation. But Greta, dear Greta, smile. The creation is yearning for childbirth. The Lord of glory coming, our older brother, renewing this earth, extracting every sense of the fall, every sense of sin and shame. And for all that we've blown it with the climate, it's still within the hands and the timing of God. And what's going to happen, verse 23? Our experiencing of glory will be a redemption. Now we enjoy the first fruits of the Spirit. The first fruits of the Spirit not only tell us that the inheritance is already ours, it explains why each of us shall die with a measure of dissatisfaction. With a measure of dissatisfaction, you see? Yes, Christ has redeemed my soul. I can go through the valley of the shadow of death. And as Pastor Bob said from the hymn this morning, we can have great confidence to stand before God in Christ. But the reason we shall die with dissatisfaction is, what's going to happen with my body? What's going to happen with my body? It is a grand truth to say, shortly you will be with Christ. But it is a grander truth to say, there is coming a day when Christ is going to come with the saints. This earth is going to be renewed, and Christ will dwell with his younger siblings on the earth before our loving Heavenly Father. And what will be happening on that great day? The adoption which has been hidden in our souls will be made visible to the cosmos as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ are raised from death to life, reunited soul and body, and we shall see one another we shall see the Lord of glory and we shall worship our Father through the Holy Spirit. You know, this week, a friend of ours died. Hadn't seen him for many years, but he was a boy that I got to know as a boy. He was afflicted throughout his life with a terrible illness. You see, his skin wouldn't grow. And every time he grew as a boy, his skin broke open. And so the medical profession said, the only thing we can do with poor Robbie is feed him with medication to keep him small. And even then, when you looked at him, you could see his skin was wafer thin, scabs all over him. Small boy, far older than what he looked. And despite having this Awful, awful disease. What does he die of? He dies of skin cancer. And this week, he entered into heaven. And what is Robbie doing? One of the errors is that we think that Robbie already has his resurrection body. No, says the Westminster Larger Catechism. He's waiting now for the redemption of his body. He's lying, or will do this week, in his grave as in his bed, waiting for the redemption of his body. That will be part of the glory for him. 
and for those of us who are in Christ. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, in concluding, we await the adoption with patience, verses 24 to 25. And for these Romans, they had this wonderful encouragement that they have a help. That when the Roman soldiers come, strike as it were the match, and their skin starts to bubble as they become torches. Even when they cannot praise, says Paul, they have the Holy Spirit interceding for them with groanings which cannot be uttered. And it is that same Spirit who's going to get us from the now to the hereafter. He who testifies to our adoption cheers us on in our sonship. When the going gets tough and we don't know what to pray nor the words to pray, he intercedes for us. And what is our hope? That we shall be glorified on the new earth. Glory for us as God reflects his glory to and into us. Oh, that will be glory for me, says Horatius Boner. Glory for me, glory for me. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory for me, glory for me. But ultimately it's going to be glory for God. Go back to Ephesians 1. Why? As the Father adopted us, that we should be to the praise of his glory. And in some unbelievable way, we shall be reflecting his glory and be to the praise of his glory. We don't know what it's going to be like on the new earth, but I imagine within the Godhead, something like this, if I can put it this way, the Son and the Spirit looking to the Father, say, mission accomplished, look at all you chose. And the Father and the Spirit looking at the Son saying, mission accomplished, look at all you purchased from slavery. And the Father and the Son looking at the Spirit saying, mission accomplished. Look at all you bound in Christ. And as Romans 8 goes on to say, so bound in Christ that there is nothing in life or in death which can separate us from God's love. May we be filled again with the Spirit and rejoice in both the grace and the glory of our adoption. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these truths. We feel we have hardly done any justice to them, but we have sought to be faithful to your word and pray that you would wing these words to our hearts to comfort us, thinking especially of those who feel the frailty of their bodies. And thank you that in Jesus Christ, his shed blood has purchased not only the redemption of our souls, but our bodies as well. And so we can but say, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Follow your word with your blessing, and we especially pray for any as of yet who are yet to receive their adoption, that by the working of your spirit tonight, the household would be enlarged, and we'll give you the praise through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.